Friends, I want to invite you to take your Bibles now and to turn over to Genesis chapter 1. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 and then, and then we'll know that we'll be, we'll be jumping around a little bit more than we have in the last few weeks as we look not just at a couple of verses from Genesis 1, but also at a big chunk of Genesis chapter 2. Uh, the last month, almost two months now, uh, we've been in a series mostly rooted in Genesis that we are calling... What Genesis says about us, a, a series that's trying to just identify the basics about what it means to be human. Uh, it's a unique series for us. Normally in our, in our sermons on Sunday mornings in here, we try to walk verse by verse by verse through a section of the scriptures, taking each verse in succession as it comes, doing our best to just understand what it means in its own context and then to apply it to ourselves because we trust that it all comes from God and that the best thing we can do is submit to it by just taking it as he's given it to us. But every now and then, we do think as part of a balanced diet in our life as a church, sometimes it does make sense to, to take a little bit more of a zoomed out view of what the Bible has to say overall on important topics, especially where those topics may be especially uh, contested, where there may be more confusion about what the Bible has to say or more questions coming from, from you guys or from the culture around us. Uh, and, and that's the type of series that we're, that we're in right now in Genesis. Um, that's why we thought it was, was worth doing. Uh, when we decided to do this series on what it means to be human, a major inspiration was more and more conversations with you guys about conversations you're having throughout your life about gender. In your jobs, in your neighborhoods, in your schools, with your kids, debriefing what they've picked up in school. More and more often, this is the type of question that that you guys are bringing to, to, to me, for example, and I know to one another and to other leaders in your life. It's complicated out there. It's confusing and just so very loaded. It can feel like talking about gender in this, in this day and age is like walking through a high-stakes minefield. It can be so intimidating to approach, but, but the reality is we can't avoid walking through that minefield. We, we've got to go through it. Uh, we shouldn't want to avoid that minefield. We shouldn't want to avoid it because people are involved when we're talking about gender. Their flourishing is on the line in how we talk about gender. And the Bible tells us we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. That means having good, clear, helpful conversations about what it means to be men and women. And we shouldn't want to avoid this conversation also because gender is a good gift from God. The Bible makes that so clear to us. He designed it. And then he deployed it because he loves us, not to hold us back from something good, but to open up good for us. And we don't want to leave that gift unopened or, or take it back for some sort of refund. So, I want you to think about the last couple of months together as foundation that we've been laying to take up difficult and contested questions like the ones we're going to take up this morning in this sermon that's going to be all about gender. We've been talking about the fact that God created everything that is. That in this world, there is a bright and shining line between the creator on one side and his creatures on the other side. We've talked about the fact that God made the world good. That everything about it, as he designed it, was designed for us, for our good, and not to hold us back. We've been talking, in other words, week by week about what it means to be in a world designed by the one and only God that is for our good. And now we're going to start to apply some of those big ideas that we've been covering together so far. 
This morning, I'm going to try to keep as tethered as I can to what the Bible says in Genesis 1 and 2 about gender. And these two sections of the scriptures don't answer all the questions that you and I have about what it means to be male or female. There's going to be way more than we can get into this morning. So what I want to do is just make it super clear up front, all I'm going to try to do from these two sections of scripture this morning. All I want to do is try to lay down for us what is the bedrock position in the Bible on what it means to be male and female. We're talking overall about what it means to be human. A big part of what it means to be human is to be either male or female. What is the bedrock position of the Bible on what that means for us? That's it. This morning I'm going to go for simple and straightforward and clear hoping to to set up conversations out there among you about all the things that are so complex. So, this morning, three bedrock truths about gender from Genesis 1 and 2. And before I give you the first one, I want to read the first couple of verses that we're going to consider together this morning. And as I do, I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me in honor of God's Word while I read from Genesis 1, picking up in verse 26, and then reading through verse 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female. He created them. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Three bedrock truths about gender. Bedrock truth number one. God made men and women as equals. Truth number one. God made men and women as equals. The first thing our verses teach us about gender is that God made men and women in his own image. That's verse 27. And that means, we've already talked about what it means to be in his image. That means that where it matters most where it matters most, God has made us equal. We both have a shared responsibility from God based on a special relationship to God. Men and women both have a shared responsibility from God based on a special responsibility to God. That's what it means to be made in his image. Now, thankfully, uh, the fact that God created men and women as equals is not likely to sound like a stretch to most of our ears. I hope it doesn't sound like a stretch to you. Thankfully, we've grown up on the backside of some really positive cultural shifts that have opened up good opportunities for women that women ought to be able to enjoy that in some times and places before now are elsewhere have not been open to them but the bible's view of human dignity what the bible says about men and women as as equal before god well that would have been radical in its own time and it's unique compared to some other religions and other cultures today and one of the ancient figures that was most influential around the time the bible was written is the old greek philosopher named aristotle He's not going to make any friends in this room right now. (laughs) Aristotle saw women as incomplete versions of men. 
So one of his famous philosophical works was trying to organize all the animals in a great hierarchy of highest to lowest. In that book, he described women as, as men who didn't get all the way there, essentially. Described them as deformed or incomplete males. And right here, in the very first chapter of the Bible, God's word comes out swinging against that view of all those that he made in his image. There was no room for the denigration of women in Genesis chapter 1 because the Bible makes crystal clear how valuable they are to God. Like I've said, the, the picture begins right here in Genesis 1. Men and women created in God's image. Men and women alike, precious to God and therefore precious. Hard stop. But this isn't the end of that picture. In the New Testament, the same pattern picks up. It is a woman through whom the Son of God is born into the world. Women make up some of his most faithful followers once his ministry begins. Women stayed with Jesus as he's dying when many men fled away from him. And they're among the first witnesses to his resurrection. And the, and, and the New Testament writers want to make sure you know they are, even though their, their testimony would not have been admissible in ancient courts. At Pentecost, God's Spirit comes down upon women as well as men, just like the prophet Joel predicted it would. And in the stories and the letters about the early church, it's really clear that women were among the first patrons of the church. They were among the first missionaries sent out by the church. And they were among Paul's dearest co-workers in the work of that early church. In fact, some of the first books written against Christianity uh, back in ancient Rome, in, in some of those books, one of the knocks against Christianity was its popularity among women. Here's a quote. Christians want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid. Only slaves, women, and little children. That's a direct quote from one of Christianity's first opponents. Now, I know that kind of talk sounds ridiculous to our ears. And I'm so grateful you don't need to be convinced that men and women are both equal in dignity before God. But I, I want to start here, even though it's only a quick point. Because I want to make sure you see that the first and best reason for believing what you probably already believe is true is that men and women are created by God in God's image. Our equality is not based on our capacities. It isn't based on what we can do that no one else can. It isn't based on physical strength. It isn't based on emotional intelligence. It isn't based on any other quality that we might value. Our equality is based on what God says about us. And specifically what God says about how he created us. And this point sets up number two. God made men and women as equals. That's point number one. Our equality is all based on what God says about us. That's point number one. It sets up point number two. God made men and women to be distinct. God made men and women as equals. He also made men and women to be distinct. See, sometimes in our culture, conversations about equality between men and women have tended to emphasize the sameness between men and women. As if our equality with one another is, is based on the fact that we're interchangeable. That men or women can do anything the other can do. For the Bible, equality is, is based differently. It's based on what God says about who we are to him. 
And it goes right hand in hand with the Bible's celebration of the fact that God intended to make us different from one another. The same God that made us equal made us to be distinct. And we see this in Genesis chapter 2. Just as soon as we're told that God made men and women in his, his image, we're taken in for a zoomed-in look that shows God made them to depend on one another through their differences from one another. Uh, somebody's talked about Genesis chapter 1 as like the Google Earth view of God's creation of the world. And then Genesis chapter 2 is like the street view of God's creation of the world. Genesis 1 is this big summary. You get the whole thing in one quick glance. Genesis 2 takes you into how it happened and to some more of the details that the Lord wanted to make sure we noticed about what he did when he made us. And when you look at the zoomed in view on Genesis chapter 2, where it slowed way down, where there are way more details given, the clear theme of the chapter is, not, is, is, is that, that a one-gendered humanity is just not good enough. Now, let me show it to you. I'm going to read to you most of chapter 2 now. I'm going to pick up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and read all the way to verse 23 before we come back over it and pick apart some of the details here. Listen to, listen to what the Lord tells us about his creation of, of us in Genesis chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he called them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast for the field. But for Adam, there wasn't found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Well, there's a lot there. Certainly a lot more than we're going to get to this morning. But friends, I think the basics of this account are clear enough. In verse 7, God creates the first man. He breathes into him the breath of life. It's a beautiful picture of God's special love for humanity. The fact that, that we live because it pleased him to share his life for us. There's an intimacy to how that picture plays out. Then in verse 8, the Lord prepares a special garden that he designed for him. In verse 15, he puts him in there so he can begin to take up the work God assigned to him. I mean, chapter 1, one of the main things it's said about the creation of humanity is that they were to be given a special responsibility to cultivate the world in God's name to represent his rule here, to bring flourishing out of this good world in the way that God called them to. Now we see the man beginning to take up that work that God had given to him. Here it is in action. And everything looks great except, verse 18, the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I and mean, this is the place where you ought to insert one of those screeching or like, record-scratching moments in this, in this story. Think about the statement that it was not good. All through Genesis chapter 1, as the poem is building, explaining how God created everything, do you remember how that poem unfolds? Do you remember the rhythm that carries it from beginning to end? God speaks. What he says happens. He looks at it, and he sees that it's good. God said it was done, it was good. God said it was done, it was good. It was good, it was good. Building up like this wave ready to crash on the, on the shore. And it crashes at the moment that God creates man and woman in his own image and sees that it's very good. That's what we're ready to see. And now, for the first time in the way Genesis unfolds creation to us, we are told that something is not good in this world that God made. We're meant to notice this. We're meant to pay attention and understand what's going on here and what's God going to do about it. I think the best way to see what's going on here is that the man by himself is incomplete. It's not that he was bad in himself. He's just incomplete by himself. The whole story of chapter 2 is told to highlight that for us. From this point, from verse 18, God calls creature after creature to Adam to inspect them. And one by one, he does inspect them and names them. But it's just clear they're not the right counterpart. They don't fit him. This story plays out the way it does because God is showing Adam and, and through this story showing us what's missing. So that he can unveil a perfectly designed counterpart. This story is told to make us stand up and take notice that both genders God has made are absolutely essential. The phrase that's used here to describe this, this person that's now necessary is a helper fit for him. Let me explain these terms. I know they might sound loaded at first pass. Sometimes that word helper can come off as demeaning because of the way we use the word. It can sound like a word that, you know, a mom might use for a, a little two-year-old who's trying to help fold the towels or stir the eggs. You know, mama's little helper. 
But that's not what this word means. It doesn't mean servant or apprentice or ride along. In fact, this word helper that's used here is most often used for God, his help of Israel in Israel's time of need. It's used for God when Israel runs up into Israel's limits, is facing something Israel's not equipped to handle on her own, and, and, and cries out for help beyond her limits to someone from the outside. The Lord met Israel at her limits as a helper who wasn't limited in the way that she was with a strength and a skill and resources that Israel didn't already have. When you hear helper, think helper as someone who's, who's not limited in the same ways as the person who's, who's needing help. And the phrase fit for him, that's the way it's translated here, fits perfectly into this same general picture. It means something like complementary but different. That's the word behind it. A perfect mix of like him and not like him in a way that nothing else was. The reason that, that they fit together is that each of them has something that the other is missing, kind of like two pieces in a puzzle. That's the best analogy that I've seen for it, for, for what's behind this word. There has to be enough similarity or the two pieces couldn't possibly fit together. But the two pieces have to be missing and supplying something in a perfect match, and that's what they do. That's what Adam recognizes when he first lays eyes on Eve. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, a perfect fit by God's design. Friends, if, if Genesis 1 is given to us to highlight how men and women are the same, that, that they are equals in God's eyes because they both carry God's image, Genesis 2 highlights that men and women are different. And they're going to fill out what God created them to do side by side, but in unique ways. That's the whole point of the way this story is told. And I realized that that point takes us into some, shall we say, loaded territory. Uh, the risk of stereotypes in talking about what's different between men and women is not a hypothetical risk. And whatever differences are out there, they're not universal. They're not applied to every person in the same way. I mean, I know lots of guys who can't fix cars. You're looking at one. And I know lots of women who are relatively safe drivers. The stereotypes just don't always apply. Seriously, assumptions about men and women and what they're like and what they should and shouldn't do can be harmful in a host of ways. And we know that because they have been. It's not a hypothetical scenario. So, so the question really is how do we move forward in thinking about the differences between men and women carefully in a way that honors how God has made us and doesn't, and doesn't add to what he said to us? I think... Clearly, there's, there's a lot more going on here than what, we can, than what we can unpack completely today. But I want to at least give you two guardrails as we talk about and look for and then celebrate the differences between men and women. We want to be careful on one side to remember we have no right to go further than the Bible goes in what we say about the ways men and women are different. We cannot say more than the Bible does. That's on one side. And we cannot say less than the Bible does. That's on the other side. Where God has spoken to us we owe it to him and to one another to accept what he said and to celebrate it and embrace it, not push back on it. So on the one hand, we can't go further than, what, than where the Bible goes and what we say about the ways men and women are different. And I think it's really important to notice that the Bible doesn't actually say that much about how men and women are different from one another. There's not a list anywhere that spells out those differences and you won't find any places where the Bible gives a specific set of commands to women versus commands to men about how they're created or what they're supposed to do. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most wonderful 
descriptions of what it looks like to live in obedience and faithfulness to God doesn't have a men and women section. It tells us, in fact, that everybody should be poor in spirit. Everybody should be merciful. Everybody should be peacemaking and on and on. When Jesus warns in the Sermon on the Mount against lust, he gives that warning to men and to women. When he warns against anxiety, he gives that warning to men and to women. He gives these warnings to all of us because he knows all of us are susceptible. When Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the work that God does in us to renew us and bring out his beauty in our lives, he doesn't give a list of fruits that women will have and a list of fruits that men will have. He just describes everyone as, as a theater for God's work in their lives to bring out love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. We need to be careful that we don't go further than what the Bible does in establishing differences between men and women. Because the Bible isn't interested in that kind of comprehensive list. That's one side. On the other side... We shouldn't say less than the Bible does either. I mean, in this text, in Genesis chapter 2, the whole point is that our differences from one another should be celebrated as gifts, not overlooked or overcome. We have to be careful, I think, not to allow the fact that stereotypes have done damage to keep us from acknowledging the wisdom and beauty in how God designed humanity together to work as male and female. This, this text, Genesis 1 and 2, especially chapter 2, shows us that God meant for us to be interdependent and not interchangeable. Interdependent, but not interchangeable. And that's a beautiful part of his design. Other texts take this further. They show us different responsibilities that are given to men and women in specific relationships, like in the home and in the church. And if God did that on purpose, if he set up specific responsibilities for specific relationships, and if he called that good, we ought to expect to see differences between us, even if they're not written in stone or even if they're not showing up in the same ways in every single one of us. It's striking to me, for instance, some reading that I was doing earlier this week, it's striking to me that we do see common differences playing out between men and women. And that those, I, I saw a study this week showing that the, that the differences, common differences between men and women in personality, for example, tend to be more pronounced in places with more gender equality in countries that have more freedom to express yourself in the ways that you want to. The differences between men and women show up even more there, where you're free to follow your own path and express yourself. That, should, that just fits perfectly with what we see the Lord telling us in his word here in Genesis. He's telling us that we are equal, men and women, made in God's image, yes. But that equality doesn't mean sameness. And thank God that it doesn't. Our calling out of, these verses, out of these verses is at the very least at a baseline to look for our differences between us and to celebrate them, to not be ashamed of them, to not be embarrassed of them, to not try to overcome them, but to celebrate them and to look for those differences, especially where it affects us most directly in our own friendships, in our own families, in our own congregation, where we see one another at work, look for the ways God has equipped us differently and praise him for those and celebrate them in one another. It honors God, and it's good for us when we do that. Now, these first two points, that God made men and women as equals and that God made men and women as distinct, I think these summarize the main thrust of the passage that we've looked at together so far. This is the main teaching of the Bible on what it means to be male and female. 
But taken together, these texts we've been looking at also make a really clear statement about one of the most contentious topics in our culture today. Uh, Let me quickly tell you what I think that statement is. And then I want to spend the rest of our time this morning walking you through how we should respond to what the Bible says in the midst of of deep cultural confusion about what it means to be male and female. Here's the clear statement. And it's point number three for this morning. God made men and women on purpose. God made men and women on purpose. By his intentional design, gender is binary. There are men and there are women, not fluid. Our biological sex is fixed by God and given to us as a gift. It's not a spectrum on which we find ourselves. It's, it's right there in Genesis 1.27. He created them male and female. And I think it, what the Bible teaches about male and female is, is a lot more clear than, than how to relate what the Bible says about gender to the world we're living in now and what it looks like to live faithfully within it. I mean, friends, you don't need me to tell you that that understanding that, that comes from Genesis about what it means to be male and female is hotly contested at every level of our culture right now. It's playing out in uh, everywhere from Supreme Court cases to school board policies to university campuses and pretty much every level of American popular culture. The ground is shifting under our feet. It's shifting all around us, and it's shifting fast. And I know you don't need me to tell you all that because I'm having conversations with so many of you about these things. Thankfully, we're talking about it. I appreciate that fact. And I know you've got questions both about what to think and about how to respond. So what I want to do with the last few minutes here is say a couple of things about the transgender conversation overall and then take up three questions that you're asking that I've heard specifically from you guys and try to answer them from the text we've considered this morning couple of things I want to say about the conversation overall that I think are important for all of us to establish as we continue to have it. And three questions that you're asking that I want to speak into today. A couple of things about the conversation. First, we are not interested in waging any sort of culture war this morning or in our church, in our life together. Culture war is not our priority. Our interest as Christians is faithfulness to God and the flourishing of our neighbors, that's it. And as Christians, we believe that those two things go hand in hand. That faithfulness to God leads to the flourishing of our neighbors. That we can't thrive in God's good world if we don't acknowledge God's good ways. Now, it's important for those of us who are Christians to know also that when we're responding to this shift on transgender issues, We're responding both to ideology and to people. That's the other thing I want to say about this conversation. Sometimes we're talking about ideas, about what it means to be human. It's important to do that work in one particular way. Other times we're talking about people who are human, who are made in God's image and are precious to him. And we have to remember them in how we speak about these issues. We have to talk about the, the, the questions that come up and the issues behind them in ways that acknowledge the difference between ideas and real people. That's what I want to say about the, the conversation overall. Now I want to take you into three questions to round out our time together. Three questions that I'm hearing from you guys that our texts this morning speak to that I hope will, will help you to continue to carry on the conversations you guys are having 
on these important topics. Here's question number one. How should I think about someone's claim to be a different gender than their body? I've heard one or another version of this question many times. How should I actually think about a claim that, that I am a woman trapped in a man's body? This is a question that takes us into the ideas that are involved in the transgender movement. And I think the most important thing to know as you think about claims like this, the most important thing to know is that it all comes down to authority. How do we know who we are? Who has the right to tell us who we are? It all comes down to authority. At the heart of transgender ideology is a belief that that only the individual can know who they are, and they know through what they feel about themselves on the inside. So, so the claim to be a different gender than one's body is a claim to what, it's a claim to what a theologian would call special revelation, a statement of what is true from the only one who would know. It's not a statement you can really interact with because it's a claim to a personal and ultimate authority you don't have access to. In this view, you just you know yourself through what you experience on the inside, not through the physical body that you have on the outside. That's why medical treatments to adapt bodies, uh, whether we're talking about hormone therapy or surgery, they're, they're often referred to as gender-affirming or gender-confirming treatments because your true gender is what you experience on the inside, and your body might be a mistake that doesn't align with the real you. The Bible confronts that idea on two levels. It teaches us that, that only the God who made us has the authority to tell us who we are. That was the point of the first sermon in this series. It's a huge part of how we see the world. Genesis 1 says there is God in the beginning and that he then created the heavens and the earth. There is a creator and there are creatures. If this creator didn't decide to create creatures, none of us would be here. And apart from his decision every single day to keep on holding up what he's made, none of us would hold together. That means our lives really aren't ours. They're his. They're designed by him. They are owed to him. They're his. And that means our primary concern when we're, as Christians, when we look at ourselves, when we look at our neighbors, our main concern is not what, what we might say about who we are, but to know what, what God says about who we are. So how do we know what God says about who we are? The answer to that, according to the Bible, is that you know through your body. God gave you the body that you have. He gave you a male or a female body. And one who is born as a man is a man because God gave him a man's body. One who is born as a woman is a woman because God gave her a woman's body. Christians believe that the bodies God gives us are not mistakes. They're not barriers to be overcome. They are good gifts from the God who loves us. And as a Christian, when we're talking to someone about authority issues, what we're saying is not that you should believe what I believe about gender because I told you to. We don't have the right to say who people are. But we also don't believe that you as an individual have a right to say who you are. You didn't make yourself. Your life is derived. It's a gift. Only God who made you can tell you who you are. So we look to him above all. And I think that's the most important thing to think about as you evaluate claims about, about what it means to be male or female in this, in this moment. Leads me to a second question, one that I'm actually 
asked way more often. Question number two, how can I love someone who claims a different gender than their body? That's why I mentioned a minute ago to remember that we're talking always about people, not just about ideas. Again, one version or another of this question, how can I love someone who claims a different gender than their body is the most common thing that I, that I get from you guys. And I'm so grateful for that. I, you're asking how to love others because the others are your friends. <laughs> They're your coworkers. They're in your families. You love them. They matter to you because they matter to God. And our goal as Christians is not to win some sort of argument, but to love people in God's name. So how can we? To know how to love someone who claims to be a different gender than their body, we've got two poles on our compass. Both of them matter. Pole number one is that we must show respect to the person. The most important thing to know about anybody is that they're made in God's image. They have the same status and the same calling that we have. That's all a Christian needs to know, to be drawn to a neighbor and to take an interest in their life and try to serve them. See, your, your transgender family member or friend might, to them, they, they might insist that their gender identity is the most important thing about them. But as a Christian, you just disagree. You don't think that that's true. The most important thing about them to you is that they were made in God's image. And that means for you, you go hard after friendship with them. It doesn't matter that you don't agree with what they might say about themselves. That doesn't have to be a barrier to the ways that you seek to love them as a friend. It doesn't have to mean you can't spend time together. You aren't affirming what they say about their identity by being a good friend to them. What you're affirming is that the person is precious to God and therefore precious to you and worthy of your time and your attention. That's what matters most and first for believers. To speak more practically even about that, for the sake of building friendship, guys, I would do everything you can to avoid antagonism wherever that depends on you. I'd I'd use whatever name is given. I'd try to avoid using pronouns at all because your, your first goal isn't to press your disagreement. Your first goal is to show respect and care for your friend that you love, that God loves. That's that's one pole in how to love someone who claims a different gender than their body. The other pole is that we must not affirm the claim that they make about themselves. This is where things get so difficult for us in our moment, but it's crucial precisely because love matters so much for what we owe to one another. Guys, love, true love, love that's true, it always seeks the good of the one that you love. You just can't be indifferent about what affects the one that you love. If you love somebody, you're going to seek what's best for them. And you're going to oppose what harms them, wherever that is. What does that mean for gender transitions? It means we're going to remember what we said in one of the first sermons in our series from Genesis chapter 1. God made the world good. Everything that he made, he made with care, on purpose, to create something wonderful. And he is the God who would know what's good. He created the world not for his amusement and not to meet his needs, but purely from love. And it's his love that made him make us in the way that he did. And if we believe that the world is good as God made it, that means we believe that our bodies are not accidents. And they're not mistakes to correct, but they're good gifts to receive with gratitude from him. That means we believe 
No one can flourish outside the boundaries God has set for us. There won't be any freedom out there. There won't be any lasting joy out there. There won't be any contentment in gender transition. It'll only bring a heavier burden to carry. If we want to respond in love, we'll have to hold that line. For those of you who practice medicine, it'll mean you won't be able to provide treatment that you believe will cause harm to your patient. That's going to take you further and further away from the standards that are guiding your practices overall. In education, you're not going to be able to teach what you don't believe to be true. What you believe will only harm those that you're responsible to teach. And for all of us, perhaps the biggest cost in holding this line is that we may feel like we're being mean, unkind or unloving, maybe even heaping shame on somebody who's already hurting. But friends, you need to know that just the opposite is true. If you love somebody, you want what's best for them. And there is nothing better in all this world than the God who made it. Than the God who calls us to live with Him in obedience and trust. You can't love someone without taking them to Him. And that means we can't affirm what anyone says about themselves where it doesn't line up with what God has said about them. And that leads me to the last question. The end of our time together this morning. Last question is, what, what should I do if I don't feel at home in my body? If it feels like my body doesn't match how I see myself. Maybe you are feeling like that this morning. I know those feelings are real. That's not hypothetical. There are many people who are confused and disoriented, pained, sometimes just weighed down by shame over all of it. And if that's you this morning, then the most important thing for you to hear and my most direct counsel to you is to trust the Lord who made you. The Lord who gave you your body as a gift. I know it's confusing out there. I know there's so many voices saying that only you can know who you really are. I know that at the same time, a lot of those voices are telling you exactly how to find out who you are. And meanwhile, on the inside, you might just be tied up in knots, conflicted, not sure who you are or where to turn for some answers. Friend, all of us, to some extent, are confused on the inside. It is stormy in there and not easy to sift through what we think and feel. We're mysteries to ourselves. And with all that inner conflict, the pressure to know who you are, That's suffocating and exhausting. And if you stay on the inside, it'll be never ending. You won't find relief in there. But the Bible offers you a different way out of that confusion. A clear, direct way to know who you are. You know who you are through the body God gave you, whatever you might feel on the inside. Maybe you're wondering, how can I trust what God gave me is good for me? Let's say I give you that point and that this body came from him and that he wanted it. For, he wanted for me to have it. How do I know it's good, his ways? It certainly doesn't feel good. And if that's what you're wondering, friend, then I'd tell you this. The main reason to trust that God's ways are good, the main way to know that you can trust what he has told you is actually Not what the Bible tells us about creation, as rich and as wonderful as that is, but what the Bible tells us about Jesus. 
you can know his ways for you are good because of what the Bible tells us about Jesus. We believe that every single one of us, whatever we think about gender, has failed to follow the good design God gave to this world. And it's not just because we're weak. It's also because we haven't wanted to follow his ways. We haven't seen them as good. We'd rather do our own thing, on our own terms, in all sorts of ways, large and small. Every single one of us have been guilty of what the Bible calls sin. But the Bible says that our sin against God didn't actually stop God from loving us or from giving us good gifts like the life that he gave us in the first place. The Bible says that the same God who gave us our lives for free sent his son to save us from the mess we've made out of what he gave us. Jesus lived perfectly. Jesus died a death he didn't deserve to die so that we could be forgiven for our sins and freed from the death that we deserve. So why should you trust that the body God gave you is good for you when it doesn't feel good? Here's the answer. You can trust it because the God who didn't spare his own son is not a God who's out to ruin your life. He's a God who's out to redeem and restore your life if you'll trust in him. He will redeem and restore your life if you trust in him. And if you want to trust in him, If you want to follow his ways with how you see yourself, nothing would make us happier than the chance to walk with you as you walk toward him. We want you here with us at Edgefield Church. And we pray that you will feel the freedom to bring us in on the life you're living. I'm going to pray now that the Lord will help us all to honor him with the, the lives he's given us. Father, we, we do pray that, that these lives as male and female that you've given to us and called us to embrace would be lives we can live to your glory. We want to honor you because you're so worthy of it. Father, would you give us the wisdom and the strength we need to do that? Would you give us grace towards one another and truth that serves one another in your name? And would you make us a community of people who are never surprised by the ways that it might be hard to lean into your designs. But that a community that's always ready to stand by and help as we all seek to follow you. We pray these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.